I want you to end your addiction to being right. You got that job, like every other leader in a large enterprise, by being right. Now the problem with being right when you're trying to create something from nothing is that you're wrong more than you're right. Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 84. Today's show is from a talk Janice Fraser gave at the Inside Outside Innovation Summit in the summer of 2017. Janice has worked with large organizations, including the White House, Navy SEALs, Lyft, and Procter & Gamble. She is currently the Chief Product Officer at Bionic Solution. Are you ready for what's next? New technologies, markets, and methodologies are changing the way people create value. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings together the best and brightest in the world of innovation tackling these challenging problems. IO Innovation is hosted by Brian Ardinger, founder of Next, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. For more information, visit next.co. That's nxxt.co. All right, I call this talk Growing the Giant Hairball. That name comes from this book. If you haven't read it yet, it's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball, and it's about how innovation worked at uh, Hallmark, which is a great Kansas-based company. It is a time-honored book. It's really fun to read. The idea is the big corporation is the hairball, and that if you want to do something innovative, you kind of have to like get a little bit farther away and then like orbit the hairball rather than being mired in it. So this is about growing the giant hairball. Um, and I'm not really going to tell you my own biography. I, I put this out there just to say that, yes, I've been in this business for a really long time, and I've had lots and lots of different titles over that time. And ultimately, the thing that has organized my career is this idea that we are always encountering something new. And so I've, like it or not, always been at this edge of how do we do this thing that is new. And uh, it was, I was at Netscape in 1996, and then I started the first, I was one of the co-founders of the first user experience company for those of you who are in software. And without going into any more detail, let's just say like every single one of those steps, we all went, well, hell, there's that thing. What are we gonna do with that thing, right? How do we do that? So that's where I am again today. And the how do I do that is really about like how do we organize these very large organizations to do things that are entrepreneurial. And as, uh, as we heard earlier, I have worked with a whole lot of groups. I will say that it was the Obama White House that I worked with, not the current White House. And throughout all of that, whether it was the Navy SEALs or the Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they all have pretty much the same problems. So whether you're in large enterprise government, small entrepreneurial ventures, I've worked with you know hundreds of startups, the challenges are all the same. And the reason that the challenges are all the same is that the challenges are all human in nature. The challenges are all human in nature, even when we're looking at systems. They're systems about organizing and managing and running humans. So this is an illustration that I found a little while ago. Um, this complex diagram, which I do not expect you to read, um, was developed by a company called Explain. They like to explain things visually. This is what their version of the innovation ecosystem looks like. It's a really cool diagram. The thing is that they missed one point, and that point is, why are we all bothering with this work? 
Why do we bother with innovation? Is it a good unto itself? Perhaps to some people. But ultimately, there's only one reason. It's because our very largest organizations cannot grow. And so that circle is on the CEO's office, right? And the CEO is like, uh-oh, we're flat. What do we do now? So I'm going to tell you this story as an opera in three acts. The first act is the situation with some complications. So in order to tell this part of the story, I want to take you back for a moment to 1987. So why do I talk about 1987? Well, it's because of this quote. Tom Peters was the management guru of that era, and he said this in 1987. And I read it dramatically, because this is an opera. To meet the demands of the fast-changing competitive scene, we must simply learn to love change as much as we have hated it in the past. Now, this screenshot is from Melanie Griffith's Working Girl, also a movie from 1987. Okay, now let's take a moment to consider today. The world is different. Really, really painfully different. Now, those of you who are reading up on your news know that uh, Uber is in a bit of trouble. Their CEO has just stepped down. Yeah, Travis is gone. But there's no doubt that every sector of every industry is being disrupted by companies that are coming out of nowhere. They're coming out of here. The duration for a corporation's stay on the S&P 500 is shorter now than it has ever been. This is the churn over a period of about 10 years. Now I want you to notice the brands that have left the S&P and the brands that have entered the S&P. The brands that are leaving the S&P 500 are ones that we thought were really permanent. You know, Anheuser-Busch, really? Black and Decker? Like, seriously, what's going on here? Now look at the ones that are coming on. PayPal, Netflix, Facebook, Blizzard Entertainment. And here's what I want to present to you. For 100 years, management practices have emphasized planning and control as a means of ensuring predictability. But when change is your greatest threat, plans and predictions are literally unbelievable. The result of that reality is a profound and intractable failure to grow. And here's the next thing I want you to think about. This pace of change that was so threatening to Tom Peters, that's disrupting our established companies and industries, that pace of change is slower today than it will ever be in your entire life. Just pause with that moment. Slower change than ever you will ever experience again. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm 51 years old. I'm actually really threatened by that. That makes me very, very uncomfortable. Maybe if you're 28, it feels exciting. But honestly, what this means is that you don't know what jobs there are going to be in 10 years because those jobs haven't been invented yet. If you're in a large corporation, what this means is that that planning and control that allows you, that has in the past allowed you to predict what your future will be, all of that is threatened. 
So just to drive this point home that growth is not happening, look at these three huge brands, huge companies that we all rely on, that we all understand every day. They are not growing. So those management practices, those planning and controls, they're really, really good for tuning and optimizing a thing that is already big and making it a little bit bigger, just a little bit bigger. So if we can spend a penny and get like 1.001 pennies out the other end because we've optimized something, that's considered positive. That's a good thing. You can get from something that's already big to something that's slightly bigger. But that's not growth. Growth looks like this. This is what Amazon, Google, Facebook, Lyft, Airbnb, all these companies have this power curve of growth. We call it hyper growth. To go from zero to something. Zero to one million, one million, 10 million, 10 million to 100 million. That's growth. But if you go to a large corporation, you're like, hey, I'm gonna return you $10 million in five years. They're gonna go like, yeah, thanks a lot. Have a nice meeting, right? And they're gonna walk out the door. Because to them, it's not even a rounding error. So Tom Peters saw this problem coming, and 30 years later, we are still scrambling to adapt. And by scrambling, I mean that we are really trying everything. We are throwing everything at this problem. Innovation Labs, and I've personally been involved in a lot of these efforts. Innovation Labs, accelerators, digital transformation. In fact, I'm looking at my co-founder and husband, and I'm like, we did all of these things. Even the like 20% time that we hear about at places like Google, all of these things, sure, were the efforts, but they're not going to fix the fundamental growth problem. They just aren't. Nevertheless, I do hold the view, and I believe it is a contrarian view. I don't think that many people believe the same thing that I do. I believe that very large corporations can and perhaps should rediscover how to grow like startups. They can only do that if they're willing to make and value and nurture something very, very small. By way of illustration, consider this woman, Simone Biles, perhaps the best gymnast that has ever lived. This woman, like amazing Olympic athlete, amazing, just blew me away. She competes against other Olympic athletes all the time. She trains every day hours and hours, she pushes herself harder and farther than any one of us in this room. No question about it. She's amazing. She's an Olympian. What she needs today to get better is to train harder, is to eat better, is to optimize that body. But if you try to put baby Simone Biles through that same rigor, little baby Simone Biles would not survive. This is what large companies do with small ideas. So in order for a large company to rediscover their growth, their entrepreneur, power curve style growth, they have to realize that you can't treat a little infant startup the way that you treat an extraordinarily large $100, $500 million business. They need different things. Baby Simone Biles needs to learn how to walk or stand or put food in her own mouth. Olympic Simone Biles needs to optimize, you know, the, I don't even know, the velocity with which she enters into her thing when she jumps and does the thing. It's not the same. So here's the thing. These outcomes, big to bigger growth and nothing to something growth, they come from profoundly different approaches to management. 
The big to bigger means you can optimize what you already have at will. The new to big, in order to create something from nothing, that means a company can grow at will. So ultimately, what I'm proposing is that today's world demands a new management approach that transforms the risk of change into an asset by supporting real entrepreneurship and venture-style investing within very large companies. That's the management protocol that we need to begin to implement somewhere in these large companies. So that means it is not sufficient to do an entrepreneur weekend, much as I love them. No entrepreneur theater, no entrepreneur tourism, taking your executives to Silicon Valley and walking them through the halls of you know, Pivotal and Google and Amazon. That doesn't help. It might open some eyes, plant some seeds, but it doesn't rekindle growth. It doesn't change how they're gonna manage. It doesn't change how they're incentivized. It is also not entrepreneur assignment for a little while. This is not a rotational program for high potential employees. It is also not part-time. It's not an idea market. None of that is actually going to change how we're managing baby Simone Biles so that she can grow up to be Olympian Simone Biles. So act two, that's the problem with some complications. The solution, and I'm gonna say this is not only attainable, this is inevitable. This is where we're going, and the only decision you have to make is are you gonna go there fast or slow? Is it gonna be painful or is it gonna be joyful? So the th first thing we're gonna do is have small cross-functional teams. We heard a few speakers talk about this yesterday. They're gonna be 100% dedicated, I'm gonna say that again, 100% dedicated. Part-time just doesn't work. These teams are gonna be exploring hunting grounds for high value customer problems to solve. And they're gonna to wanna to solve those problems in ways that leverage the proprietary gifts of the core company, right? If you're Coca-Cola, you have proprietary gifts. If you're Procter & Gamble, you have proprietary gifts. This goes to that idea like, should we do this idea? These teams, these startup teams, will be funded by some version of an internal venture board of top company leaders. I've put the, the, the initial CEO on one of those uh, venture board people because I believe it has to, to go all the way to the very, very top of even the largest corporations. And those leaders are needed because they give permissions and protection to these little teams of pirates going off and starting something new. And they do that so that the teams have autonomy. Because one thing that Silicon Valley or Silicon Prairie or Silicon Alley style entrepreneurs have is autonomy. Their funders give them money and then expect to hear from them in a few months. But they don't manage their day-to-day -day operations. They expect those entrepreneurs to go figure it out. These, these entrepreneurs are the new high flyers in your organizations. So if you're in a very large organization, there's a good chance you have a high-po program, some sort of rotational management awesomeness program that allows your high-potential people to get to the top faster by giving them important experiences. This is not that, but these are the people who are going to help you find your hyper-growth uh, again. To do this well, those leaders, they need to add new skills 
They need to add a new mindset. This is about becoming ambidextrous, not leaving behind the old, but knowing that in addition to the old, you have to have a whole new, so that this is for optimizing what's big and protecting it, and this is for creating something from nothing. So we have to introduce these folks to a whole new way of managing. Now this is why so many innovation programs fail because they're being held to the same standards, being managed the same way by people who have not been introduced to new mindsets or ways of working or managing. And progress looks very different when you're creating something from nothing than it does when you're going from big to bigger. So what can you do? Act three. My guess is that there are a few different kinds of folks here in this audience. If you are one of the rare few at the very top who has a lot of, uh, of power, uh, to make change. There might only be one of you in this audience. I'm talking to you. I want you to go zombie hunting. We've heard a lot about zombies over the past few days, and here's why I want you to go zombie hunting. I'll tell you why those zombies exist. It's because people are afraid to tell you, leader, that they're failing. When failure is not rewarded, then it becomes hidden. Hiding it is a natural thing. So that means there are lots of zombies. And what's the negative impact of zombies? We heard about this yesterday. They are sucking out the brains and budgets of your organization so you cannot afford to try something, making something from nothing. But if you go zombie hunting, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill t just 10% of the zombies. Just kill them. Shoot them in the head. And I want you to use those savings and those people to fund autonomous teams of renegade misfits. Pirates, put them on a pirate ship. Ask them to explore 10 ideas. Bet you one of them might be worth doing something with. 10 ideas, four months. You'll probably come out with something interesting. It's a way better spend than letting those zombies continue to suck out the brains of your company. Now, if you were a person instead who runs an innovation program, your job expectancy is about two years. I'm just going to say that out loud. I want you to end your addiction to being right. You got that job, like every other leader in a large enterprise, by being right, by telling people that you're right, by injecting your opinion, by telling people how to do something, by being right. Now, the problem with being right when you're trying to create something from nothing is that you're wrong more than you're right. So if you pretend that you're right, you're messing everything up. So, start to think about this truth. If you believe that you have the answers, you are blocking the insights that a good entrepreneurial approach will bring to you. So if you're like this, I'm blocked, I've got the answers, entrepreneur don't tell me how it is, I'm going to tell you that your experiment is bad and your metrics don't matter and your idea is crap. That is not going to help you find commercial truth through experimentation, which is what entrepreneurs have to do. That's their job. So instead, the power move here is to move from answer-based leadership to question-based leadership. Your job now, as an ambidextrous leader, is to ask questions. What did you learn? How did you learn that? What is your evidence? What's the next thing that we need to learn about? What is the highest risk thing that you should explore next? These are the questions that are going to get you to the commercial truth. Which means that if you're the internal entrepreneur, you have a new job as well. I want you to play Moneyball.
But first, I want to give a shout out to the Golden State Warriors, who also play a very generous game of basketball. Both of these, both of these metaphors value team effectiveness over individual contribution, even though the Golden State Warriors have a few extraordinary players. But they all share this value. You have to show up, you have to play, and if you don't believe in it, you don't belong. That's a lot of what it's like to be an entrepreneur in one of these something from nothing kinds of endeavors. But specifically back to Moneyball. If you haven't seen the movie, let me just tell you, they created excellence from a group of ordinary average players who practiced their craft of baseball reliably using data to guide the way. That is what every good startup does. Some of the speakers yesterday on the mezzanine stage were talking about Agile. Well, Agile has the same promise, that a team of average performers, if put into the right context, will deliver excellence reliably every day in their quest. And that's what good entrepreneurs do. So your power move. Some things, these are mostly Google search terms. Make information radiators. That's a really great search term. Basically what it means is there's a place in a public space where you track your progress so that passively everyone on the team can see what the status is. So track your progress quantitatively. Schedule your pivot or persevere meetings. And if you don't know what that means, the first thing you have to do is learn the mechanics of lean startup. So here's the wrap up. We looked at this very complex innovation ecosystem and hopefully what you see now is that it's really all about growth. These trends, these macro trends, they're going to affect the future of your company. Whether your company is a startup or a large enterprise, they're going to affect you and they may determine the course of your career. So you have a choice to make. Will that future be nimble and responsive or will it be strained? Thank you very much. That wraps up this special feature from Janice Fraser. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview for an upcoming episode with Carrie Davis, who was formerly with Coca-Cola and is now the founder of the company called Your Ideas Are Terrible. Until next time, go out and innovate. The 10 things that we have learned. So practicing pre-socialization. You know, if you're someone sitting at your desk and somebody shows up and says, hey, I, maybe you're a finance manager. I've got a fintech startup. I think they're really cool. Maybe you should work with them. It's just like, I mean, you're coming out of outer space and dropping in on this person. They have no idea what to say to you. They're probably going to ignore you.